Take it away. <laughs> this episode of the Oral History Podcast is sponsored by the Bookless Reader, a book blog offering opinion, news, and lists from the bespeckled word nerds at Bookless Magazine and Bookless Online. Whether you're seeking fresh fodder for your book group or audiobooks to help while away your commute, you're sure to find what you need at www.booklistreader.com. While you're there, make sure you sign up to receive daily updates via email. They're like love letters for your inbox. I could not finish this book. I found it tedious and plain awful. I cannot imagine any child of 10 to 14 enjoying this novel, and I will not recommend it to any of my patrons. The Newbery Committee failed with this choice. Hey, Krista, what are you reading right now? Ooh, I am reading... Um, I'm actually listening to, because you know I am an audiobook person, even though I know you're not one. Um, I am listening to uh, Jessica Strasser's Almost Missed You, which is kind of a both a family drama and a suspense. It's very good. Uh, and I'm also reading The Association of Small Bombs by Karin Mahajan and... I just finished Letters to a Young Writer by uh, Colin McCann, which was excellent, really good, um, even for not young writers. It's great. What are you reading, Carrie? Well, let me just stipulate that I'm not against audiobooks. It's just that because of my possibly mentioned before hearing problems, I just don't like listening to things that... I'd really want to be able to pay extra attention to and, you know. Yes, anyway. fair, fair so point. I, I, I don't I, have hearing aids and you sometimes do. So fair point. Yeah. And yeah. And also just, I don't know. I just like looking at the way it looks on the page because I just think, I think in actual sentences, I don't think in You're not an oral learner. Anyway. Well, and also in fairness, because mm-hmm. I edit so much, I feel like my eyes do that. So I don't, sometimes I don't like to read because it feels like it takes the pleasure out of it because I'm looking for editorial problems, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's gross. Okay. (laughs) I just finished reading um, Tom Rob Ford's The Secret Speech, which is the second book um, in his little thriller mystery uh, series with uh, it's set in communist Soviet Union during the 1950s, and that was a fine little uh, thriller. Oh. I like that. Read it, liked it. Um, and now <laughs> I'm reading this book called Robert Lowell, Setting the River on Fire by Kay Redfield Jameson. It's about the poet Robert Lowell and his bipolar and his poems, and it's kind of a character study of his life and his creative work and how his um illness affected both of those things i'm so interested it's pretty good these books i'm so curious about that oh that's just that's just a fresh air recommendation they talked about Mm. to the yeah but he's interesting to me because i've always so like I've always read like Kate or uh, Anne Sexton, yeah. you know, and liked her in, in my uh, college years, like every other white girl in America. And um, she was always a big fan of Robert Lowell and his confessional poetry. And then I would read his confessional poetry and go, what the fuck is this? I have no idea. What you're, talking. you're talking about statues and plazas and taking fucking Thorazine. And what are you fucking confessing to? Anyway, I'm getting a little bit better backstory on what all that shit's about. So maybe I'll go back and read his um, poems again and try to see if I'm any smarter this time around. But um, it's uh, if you really want to know the truth, that book it's very it's interesting because Kay Redfield Jameson is a psychiatrist. Uh, she's a psychologist, doctor, whatever, a researcher on bipolar. She has bipolar herself. She's written a lot about it. Um, and she so she talks about the the illness in a very clinical sense and with all this research backing it up. So she'll be like, actually, from a neurological standpoint, you know, Lowell's fine motor skills being delayed was, you know, in line with the research we know about bipolar oh, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of fascinating. And um, it just looks at everything really yeah. differently in that way. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. 
And she, but she's sort of a flowery writer. Like she has like six sentences about, you know, some particular strain of his madness when maybe one will do. But I'm kind of like, eh, I'll give it to you, whatever. Oh, um, the association okay. of small uh, That's enough of that. Like that. I feel like it's it similarly to Exit West. There's something about um, writers who, like the conciseness of language there that I have found among, uh, and maybe it's particularly in talking about the Middle East, uh, but there's just, I, I feel like I've learned a lot about conciseness of language from these books. So just interesting. I feel like maybe mm. flowery is sort of a Western problem. Well, in, unless either of those books are in translation, which sometimes when you get something super concise and uh, kind of terse in its description, if it's translated, then, you know, you have no idea. You're looking at the back of the tapestry, so to speak, right? But I also think that there's an American excess, exactly like you say. Like, why not, you know, why have one flow, flowing, beautiful, long sentence with six semicolons when eight more would be, you know, that much better? Like, yeah. Anyway, okay, well, now I'm no, just being a bitch. Not, not. All right. And we'll get to that maybe even in today's topic. But uh, first, we should okay. remind our listeners that if you're listening um, and you're interested in a more in-depth written piece about today's topic, you can sign up for our tiny letter and uh, we'll link that yes. in the show, show notes. So, yeah. Don't forget to check out our t-shirt shop on our website, www.theoralhistory.podcast.com. All proceeds from the sales of our t-shirts go to support Scarletine, which if you haven't visited it, you need to go there now, www.scarletine.com. They offer sex ed for teenagers and young adults, sites full of great advice and information. It's all like a nonprofit run by this awesome woman named Heather Corinna, and uh, it's just amazing. It's a uh, chock-a-block full of data for yeah. teenagers. She has a book, um, too, about sex, like the good, good sex. Good, Yeah, she's great. She is great. Yeah, that whole place. So all of our... our our proceeds go 100% to Scarletine because, as I said, it's a nonprofit and um, <clears throat> it's a great place to direct people, especially kids, if you know their school district doesn't have any sexual health information in the curriculum. Um, so, and also, um, our t shirt shop is T Public. It's a T Public shop, and occasionally they have sales. They slash it down to 14 bucks instead of 20. So, you might want to take advantage of that. And we always put that up on our Facebook page with the podcast. So, just uh, like us on Facebook, and then you can okay, keep up stop to date with your with that. branding, your advertising. We're done with that. We're moving on. I know. I know. Super gross. The promotion <laughs> part of the, the, the thing is done. We're moving on. Let's talk. No, yes, now, now it's, it's pure, pure art, just pure um, let's art. Let's go into today's topic, which is more of a meditation on genre, specifically the genre of young adult fiction, which uh, you and I have both been writing for several years now, and we have been obviously readers of it for quite some time too. And uh, today, what you and I have both been talking about lately is the plethora of adult novels that have come out over the last several months and really the last couple of years, I would say, that have featured uh, teenagers as their protagonist uh, or their sort of narrator. And we're going to talk about that and uh, speculate on why they're not marketed as YA as opposed to being in the sort of either adult market, adult literary market, whatever we want to call it. Um, and, and some people speculate part of the reason is because they're more literary books. So, yeah. Whatever the fuck that means. Okay. Maybe we should start with a quick review of how people like to define young adult as a, a genre or a reading category or, uh, whatever the fuck it is. Um, well, what do you I think, think a couple things on that. One is that, um, I'm going to say like even genre is people are prickly about that term. I mean, I guess to me, yeah. the most basic, I, I've heard it in, in two ways that I really like. One is 
uh, a very basic sort of definition, which is you're, you're writing a story about a person who was a teenager. That's it. That's sort of the yeah. most basic, yeah. what's young adult, it's writing about a story about a person who's a teenager. Uh, the other sort of side of that coin is you're writing for teenagers. Um, so I've yes. heard both those. Uh, I, I think writing for teenagers can be sort of dubious as far as things go. I don't know what you think about that, because I think uh there's a sort of writing for teenagers and then which which I like to do I like when I hear from teenage readers I feel like that community is super interesting to me I also see many 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 teenagers in my life who don't read YA at all who read solely adult books who are sort of over YA or they, they don't really like YA or um so that's complicated but that's I guess, so I tend to be thinking, you know, from its, in its most basic form to me, YA is you're writing a book that main character is a teenager. Right. I, I like that definition. I think certainly though, the reason why people argue about this is because some people write for teenagers, about teenagers and about and for them, you know, at the same time. So people argue because they come to this, you know, they they become inspired to write something for one reason or another. Like they have some teenagery story that's really vivid in their lives and they want to put it out there or they they want to write a book for their own teenage self, what they wished had been on the shelf, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I guess... I know it's kind of hard, like, because I feel like I write books that I just want to see on the shelf anyway. So I don't know about my teenage self because I was a very big snob and there wasn't a lot of books for young adults specifically when I was a teenager. But um, I guess the other time other people say it's a point of view um, and I don't know if anyone really cares what the genre definition is unless somebody breaks it or starts to roll over the boundaries and then people are like wait 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 what the hell is this and then there a long intellectual conversation ensues on Twitter or something and um, I guess I I don't like it doesn't interest me to try to write for an audience because then you're kind of chasing what's trending or you're you have kind of a static view of what a teenager is when that I think is a way too big of a monolith to capture what they want to read because in my life most of the teenagers I know don't read at all um so I just feel like well what do they care you know yeah. like <laughs> I don't know how to make them read. They, none of them read anything. So you know, or um, they read adult, or they stuff think. Too. I mean, that's what it. they read adult stuff. They read what's assigned to them, or they read stuff on yeah, Wattpad, I which I guess they're sort of deciding that that really low bar is what constitutes a good story. Is a you know fanfic that has eighty seven chapters or something. Um, so there's, it's hard to say, like, what is it that they want? Because I don't know that it would work to chase that. I think it's easier to say, well, what was it like when I was a teenager? How did I feel? And then write a story kind of in that spirit. But at the same time, it's hard to do that because everything is so different every generation. So you can't be like, you know, you have to still be abreast of what contemporary kids what the the specifics of yeah. their lives are. I think that well like. anything that's just involving research, right? That's the 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 big part sure. of it. I, I also think that there's an element here that we have to consider, which is that, you know, I know people who say, well, why is not a genre? It's uh, you know, it's its own thing. It it's it's not like when I think of genre fiction, I think, you know, romance or cozy mysteries or you know, sci-fi, fantasy, science fiction, YA is a bigger monolith than that, because what we're talking about is all of those things can be components of what is YA. And so you get into this whole issue of, well, am I just kind of writing for uh, an age group here? And for me, and, and, you know, to your point, well, it's hard to do because what do we know about that age group? For me also, I actually have the side where 
I am forever, I guess, writing for people who don't like to read, which, you know, makes my audience not that big. Um, But (laughs) like when I'm sitting down to at least write a YA book, as I know it, I am thinking about, you know, the incarcerated girls that I work with or the, you know, the readers who write me and say, I haven't read a book in a year and I finished yours in the night. Like I, that's what I think about. I think about a story I want to tell for sure, but I think that there's also a side of me that thinks, uh, how do I get people to read? Cause that's always my big goal in life in, in many fashions is to cultivate readers. And so that's what I think about, but whether or not it's a specific age group, I'm more like, Hey, I'll take anyone. You know, I think most people will because sales right. are sales and, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, I have a daughter who's a teenager. I teach teenagers. I don't feel particularly like enslaved to the service of teenagers because I feel like I do enough <laughs> for actual human teenagers. So these theoretical teenage readers, I, I just can't have them enter into my brain when I'm sitting down to make something up. But at the same time, like I think so there's the YA as a the shelf at Barnes and Noble, which is what a lot of people encounter. And then they say, oh, that shit, you know, oh, it's a bunch of romance. And then there's some girl who's like a hero and blah, blah, blah. And there'll be a movie. And, you know, like that's their their encounter with the whole genre. They're not going as far deep. Who does go pretty deep are youth librarians who I think might be the only thing you can make Uh, clear about this genre is that it has a built-in kind of um, fan service (laughs) section in librarians and schools because we're still, um, your readers are still being assisted by professionals to find books and find what they like and, and your audience is kind of held captive in a school building and so if there's a librarian there, you have an option for your books to get in front of those kids in a way that adult books don't. So maybe the genre is really marked by um, the people that are sort of, uh, I don't want to call them gatekeepers, I guess, but they're the the people who are sort of tastemakers and and, um, sort of managing. Curators is a better word, I think. Yeah. So I I mean, I I can't think of another genre that really has that. Than children's literature. Aside from picture books. Right. Children's literature. But let's unpack that a little bit because that's interesting to me too. I, I like the idea of this, that we start thinking about, I don't know, that we just start thinking about it in terms of YA being defined by accessibility and things that someone is going to sort of curate for you in one way or another, because the bookseller side of me also understands that it's mostly who's buying YA books, you know, and this is the the question. Whenever I see those things that say like 50% of people who are buying YA are adults. Well, yeah, but a lot of them are parents, like buying for their kids or grandparents. Right. And so to me, most of the interactions now, I work in the day, so that factors. I'm not a weekend worker, so that factors in. But most of the interactions I see with this is adults coming in to buy YA books for their teenagers. I have a 15-year-old, and she's read all these things, and she loves this. What do you think I should get for her? What's the next thing? So in all ways, this is sort of being curated for someone, for for teenagers in general, right. is whether it's by librarians or by parents or by, you know, even booksellers, I guess, to an extent, um, you know, this is stuff that, or maybe their friends or whoever, there's sort of a curation as opposed to necessarily them walking through and, and saying like, oh, the world is my oyster. What do I want to read? I mean, I, I feel like that's <laughs> an important factor in this. And when we talk about adult titles that have teenage protagonists, one of the things that I've talked to people who have written these books, um, and I think about like Rachel DeWaskin, who wrote um, Big Girl Small, or Anthony Bresnikan, who wrote uh, Brutal Youth, these books that were have teenage protagonists that are marketed to adults. And both of them have said sort of a variation of, well, this book has these my book had some teeth in it 
And so they decided not to sell it as YA because, you know, you know what I'm saying? When, when I mean like have teeth in it, like it's got, you know, either some issues or darkness or it doesn't have a a ray of hope at the end or or the things that we kind of think. And, And what's fascinating to me is both you and I write books that are YA that have a lot of teeth in them. And so we don't actually, we couldn't get through the curators at schools, at least. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, I think that there's, you know, there's not a uniform response to what, what among publishers and editors, what constitutes a young adult book. I mean, I think you put five editors of YA books in a room and they would all disagree about what what makes a book good for this genre or they would, or what, where's the line? Like, can we talk about ass sex? Can we talk about rape? Can we talk about drug use? I mean, like what, where, what are the teeth that they're going to, you know, flinch from? I don't know. Like, I think that's, I think a, that's, fair, you're, that's not, a fair assessment. Cause if you're talking about like scholastic, which they're looking at their book fairs going, there's no way we're going to be able to get something in, in there. That's not clean you know, not clean, you know, that's right. not going to go through the book fairs that way. Or you're talking about like our editors who have said, this book's not m- maybe going to be, you know, taught in classrooms, but we think it's important anyway, because it's got this sort of literary hook in or whatever it is going to be. Right. I guess I find it sort of baffling that, what we're really talking about, we're not really talking about librarians as curators, you know, making these decisions. We're talking about them being afraid of what uh, various parents in the public are going to say about a book if it lands in the library or ends up on a curriculum. Um, and, and that's what we're scared of, which is insanity to me, because we're talking about a lot of adults who don't read that much anyway, and then they're getting all, you know, bent out of shape about a couple of sentences in a book that they're trying to promote reading with their kids so they can be academic and smart. And then really what it comes down to is we're worried about a couple of persnickety people in some school district in Alabama or, you know, Southern Minnesota or whatever. That's who is actually putting the teeth, who's deciding what, constitutes teeth or crossing the line. And I'm just like, eh. you know, like the fact that your readers might be young has a thing that makes it, uh, it just makes it part of the genre itself. Like what people are even willing to do or what they think would be helpful for kids to read about or know about. Um, and I mean, I don't know if I think there's definitely things that are helpful for kids to read about, especially things that aren't discussed at the dinner table. But I also know that, like, you know, you can never tell what might be helpful or interesting or fascinating to anyone. It's a really hard, it's the essential problem of being in the publishing business. (laughs) Who knows what's going to really fascinate somebody I don't know it's hard to tell Um, yeah no no I totally agree I'm I'm right there with you I I also think that there's something to be said about um the idea that a a librarian could be a champion for some sort of book but sometimes they have to take the path of least resistance which is all right we'll just bury this book somewhere we're just not gonna have you know and 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 they just quietly sort of circulate it out and that's the way things go well, is we just saw that in um with uh, Amber Kaiser was the editor of the V Word book that you and I are both in that anthology and uh, uh a librarian i believe in yeah, Charleston, south carolina yeah. got in, in trouble just just for putting it on the a display that was anywhere near the kids as if it was you know covered in ebola or something and um that whole notion of like well what are we ready to teach our kids and are our kids protected in this way or that way or what do they need to know you know i mean it is kind of a really uncomfortable restrictor plate to put on people that are making up stories. Um, but I mean, it's sort of, you can't get rid of it. I, I don't know. Well, and then really... it becomes, does the solution is, you know, which kind of gets us into our, our, our discussion for the day, which is, is the solution then 
if your if your YA has you know pushes too many boundaries, is the solution for you to now sell it as an adult book? If you know, I mean, I have this theory that part of the reason that there's so many books currently in the adult world uh, that have teenage protagonists. So these would be the books that, you know, presumably could win an Alex award, right? That's sort of what I'm thinking of. Sure. Um, That part of the reason is that it's, it's a marketing thing, right? Is that they realize that, you know, publishers at large or the marketing people realize, okay, this genre is doing very well and it's selling to adults and adults love these books just as much as kids. Like what if we gave them, you know, we allowed this and we could bypass the curators or the gatekeepers or whoever, and just really market these to the adults that they're, that they, that are already reading YA. And so that's when you're getting uh, the impossible fortress, which I, I think I told you that I just finished, which really is a story told completely by a 14 slash 15 year old boy. And, but the whole sort of conceit of the story is scheming around trying to get the Vanna White Playboy in 1987. Um, and it's a really funny book and it's very sort of, but it, it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's like any sleazier in any way than what either of us write. Uh, I don't think there's, you know, right. there's nothing in it. And it even has like sort of a ray of hope ending. So when I was reading it, I, I kept thinking to myself, why isn't this book YA? Why isn't this book YA? And I almost feel like it was just a marketing call that was made where they were saying, you know, these why these books that have teenage protagonists are doing really well in the adult market right now. Um, so let's try and sell it up that way. And I, and I think of sort of breakout books like the girls is another example. Now the girls had that weird thing because it went from her life as a teenager into her life as an adult woman. And it sort of flipped back and forth, which I guess Maybe the argument there is there's more flexibility when you can sell it that way. Um, But even still, like, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, maybe all of this stuff is marketing choices that they realize, oh, all right, let's try and tap into this readership who's still interested in teenage protagonists, but doesn't want to, you know, head over to the aisles that is, you know, well, why let's talk about that for a second cuz i also think that a lot of people's um the sort of conventional view of young adult fiction is that it's easy to read and it's not complicated and then because of the teenage element like we can't give them james joyce so uh let's give them something that they can swallow really quickly and they don't have to chew on for very long and certainly those books exist on all in every genre you know, yes all levels right um and i'm not saying i don't want to read those books cuz i do i totally have my faves and the when i'm in the mood for that i i know what i want to go and get um i don't know why teenagers would be any different uh, i don't know why they would only want to you know have those kinds of easy reads um but i guess i think there's a view like well if this is too complicated or this might be boring because it talks about people that aren't you know young i don't know that that's necessarily well, i wonder I, I don't know that that assumption i agree works I, I think you're right cases. i also think that there's a lot more depth to why in general than than an easy to read thing but i wonder if the assumption is here so in terms of like depth, think about, you know, Amy King's I Crawl Through It or The Princesses of Iowa, Molly Bacchus, or even Bone Gap, right? These are books, or Out of Darkness, like these are books that have a lot of layers in them. And you start thinking mm-hmm. about that. And I wonder if the assumption is, okay, yeah, those books exist, but the majority of YA is easy to read read because it's binge worthy. And the it, the right. idea being that teenagers will not spend time like pouring over a book. They will not, you know, languish in the language or s- start thinking about all the layers in there. So instead we give them this because they'll finish it in a night, which 
I guess is, right. can be a, a teenage thing. I mean, I've definitely seen that with my own kid where she'll finish a book in a day and I'm like, what? But then the other side of that is she might finish it in a day, but she won't touch another book for another week. And then she'll still be talking to me about that book all week long. So like that becomes a, yeah. a, a, I guess, a different question altogether, but is it that genre, YA as a genre now has, has been sort of shoehorned into this idea that you have to be able to finish it in a night. And so we as writers right. need to be working with that mandate um, or, you know, which works for me since I write for reluctant read, I tend to write more for reluctant readers, but for people who are like, oh, you know, I have all this subtlety or nuance or all these different things in there, then does that become harder? Or if you write longer books, since I tend to not write longer. Well, why would nuance be harder? I mean, if they're not, if the kid is a blunt instrument reading it, they're not going to notice it. So who fucking cares? Like, I, I don't know why, like, ooh, don't give teenagers nuance. Well, maybe they'll just blast right over it. Like some of the jokes and, you know, animated movies that are put there for the adults that have brought the kids yes. to see it. Yeah, you know? well, that's true. That's true. I don't and know the why. question is like, why, you um, know, should we not put nuance in because we think they'll blast over it? I mean, it's way better in my mind. It's way better right. to have the nuance or to be able to read something and think, Man, there was a lot in that um, that had, yeah, that just makes you keep thinking about it. So, you know how many books a week I read. I mean, it's sort of obscene, really. Um, But I finished um, Everything I Never Told You, which is a Celeste Ng book. Uh, It was a very, very popular Mm -hmm. book. It won the Alex Award a couple years ago, and it was like a New York Times notable book, and it was just really, really incredible. And and I am still thinking about that book. I mean, I've read probably since I, I read that a few weeks ago. So since then, I've probably read 15 books. And I'm still thinking about that book because the layering of that book was so incredible. I mean, just so much in there. And, you know, what's funny about it is that Jojo read it too. And afterwards, I was like, oh, did you catch this? And she was like, no. I didn't, you know, and I was like, well, all right, that's fine. You don't have to, you know, it's sort of like if you go back and read, you know, like if you go back and read something you were forced to read in high school and then you go back and read it as, a, you know, a middle aged mother or something, then you go, whoa, look at all that stuff I didn't see there before. I think that's just part of, you know accumulating metaphorical, you know, baggage. And I, my, the other thing is like the, the idea of giving a book to a kid and saying, Hey, you're, you have these problems. I bet you'd like this book. Like I've tried to do that with my kid before. And she's just like, you know, like she doesn't want to read stuff where her own self is represented, but she just read, um, Mindy Scott's free fall, which you know, is a favorite of mine. And um, because I was like, yeah, you might like this one because the guy is kind of funny and um, but it has some like interesting things about, you know, anxiety and whatever. And I thought maybe but she totally sucked that up, finished the whole thing, loved it. It's a boy narrator. Their problems are not problems that she necessarily has. It's so hard to decide. Like, I mean, it's not she wasn't reading um, that to kind of connect with those problem she was reading it as an escape like anyone else would like I just I want to be out of myself in some way and that's hard to like decide what what a kid where they're gonna you know they could be that way and one week and the next week they want to be you know escaping and the next week they want to be connecting to their own story and so it's really that is so hard to pinpoint. The, the other thing is, you know, the one book you were talking about, um, the girls, where it starts where she's young and then tracks as she ages and becomes yeah, an pops adult. Back and and forth, yeah. There's another book. Yeah. The um the idea that like teenagers would be like, oh, adult, I'm out. You know, like I think that's kind of weird because we make them read a lot of books about adults in uh school that they just have to fucking suffer along with, you know, Lenny and what's his name and of mice and men and dumbass Jay Gatsby and all that shit. So, um, you know, we, they do read about adults and they live to talk about oh, it. But I think the, they um, sometimes are even more interested in that. 
Because they were like, they don't want to see sure. their own dumb life, you know, dramatized. A lot of times, I mean, JoJo says all the time that she right. would much rather read that. Plus, she kind of feels like a grown-up then, you know? <laughs> yeah, and there's an aspirational aspect. Well, there's the this book called Love Me Back by Merritt Tierce that I think Roxane Gay recommended it. And so I read it and I love that book. I still think about that book. It has the most perfect, perfect, beautiful ending. And it's so sad. It's about this woman and it starts in her teenagers. She gets pregnant and she has a baby and then she and the baby's father try to work it out. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't click with her. And so she just sort of, um, she sort of drifts away from the the father, the the child, and the child itself, and into this life where she works as a waitress at a big steakhouse. And so her life is really about, you know, discovering what she wants to do. And she does a lot of self-destructive stuff. You know, she's not taking care of herself, and she's not a part of her daughter's life. And she loves her daughter deeply, but can't reconcile that, you know, she she missed this youth by by having her. And um, in a lot of ways, this is a super unlikable character, a mother who won't be with her daughter. Um, But it's so good. And it starts out as a teenager and then goes into her, you know, like late 20s, early 30s. And like, I don't know, maybe teenagers wouldn't think that was for them. But if the book starts there, can't they stay with it? Like, I I don't know. Can they imagine their life? By that definition... Yeah, Gone with the Wind is a YA book. Scarlett O'Hara's like fucking 16 when that dumb thing starts up. So uh, couldn't they see her as the, you know, the flirty teenager who's just really interested in boys and then becomes a woman who has to, you know, make all these horrible choices. And I mean, everyone hates Gone with the Wind now. And they also hate Catcher in the Rye now. Um, but those also could technically be considered, you know, YA. Well, Catcher in the Rye, for sure, start I feel there. like it more has been treated thusly. Um, gone with the Wind, not so much, right. but only because, you know, you're dealing with marriages and a whole slew of other things plus it's ridiculously racist in a lot of ways and so there's that problem too but I think um kind of at least I'm curious what you think about this is that there's a part of me that wonders if some of the reason that we're seeing these uh books sort of being sold as adults or moving up into that category isn't just a marketing decision about, you know, where our readers are, but it's also a shift in in the kind of YA that's been coming out recently is that we're, you know, the kind of YA that's being released in the genre as YA looks a lot different than, you know, um, you know, Girls on Fire or um, Daniel uh, Miguel's one of the boys, which I read recently, which is actually about a 12, it's told from the point of view of a 12 year old uh, boy, but he's very mature. Cause he's got, I mean, he's got this very unprotective father who brings his game to everything really. Um, and it's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the glass castle where it deals with abuse and other things, but these things, I think, would for as much as I, I would say, like, this could be a YA book, there's also a part of me that thinks these books do not fit in the current YA climate. Does that make sense? What's your thought right. on that? Yeah, I think like the people that are real diehard, people that have, you know, review blogs and go to conferences and want all their books signed and stuff. I think those people might be really interesting to talk to about what they think the definition is, because those people tend to Mm -hmm. hate my books. Same. Same. (laughs) They're too dirty. The characters aren't inspiring. You know, everyone's on drugs. The ending is always, you know, like they hate the endings. Yeah. What was the point of this? You know, and so I think that view of how how it ought to be, even if those people are grown adults, they have gotten used to a kind of story and then they go, that's what that's teenagers. That's what they like, you know, and so they get kind of bent out of shape about that. And so maybe a book like, you know, uh, Love Me Back or uh, one of the boys, uh, Girls on Fire, they would be like, eh? 
no, you know, <laughs> I can't do nail art that goes with this. This makes me feel gross. You know, I can't, I can't feel like, you know, a flutter in my belly about the possible romance or, you know, the kick-assness of this tale. I, I don't feel that. So thus, that's not young adult. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, the thing is, I think that those readers, they still are going to get all the books that they need. They just probably, they need to probably yeah. avoid me and you. Um, and and but, some uh, of these adult the, titles. Because tend- the other thing is that these adult right. titles, one of the things that I've noticed about them, particularly like One of the Boys and The Impossible Fortress, and even Everything I Never Told You is these are, all, and the girls, all of these do this thing where they're set in the past. So, and Girls on Fire does this too. All of these are set in, uh, I think uh, everything I never told you is set in the late seventies, but everything else is set in the eighties or nineties. And I wonder too, if there's like an element of nostalgia, but there is also an inhibition in terms of the stuff that I see on page where I'm like, Oh, this would never go over, even if you were writing historical fiction in YA, that there's like language that's used, there's things that there's like assumptions, there's uh, in the impossible fortress, they have this whole part about, you know, where they're, they're like joking, like, what are you a fag? And they do a bunch of mother jokes. And it's horrifying. And I as an adult know this is horrifying. And I wonder if the question is that there's an assumption that if you're if you're writing that kind of thing in YA, that that your readers aren't clever enough to see that this is historical and that people were gross then and people didn't think about things and they, you know, all of those right. things. I wonder if there's a lack of trust of, you know, of teenage readers. And yet at the same time, I would say, like, the reason that I even read The Girls was because my book club read it and my book club read it because one of the women's 15-year-old daughters was obsessed with that book and read it three times in a row and loved it. And so there's also a side of me that's like, I think they get the nuance. I think that they would understand that, you know, in the 1980s that, you know, those kind of jokes, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I, I mean, maybe. I guess it's always a risk. You know, it's a risk when you engage in a piece of art, like you might not get it. You might not like it. You might be offended by it. Like, yeah, that could happen. I don't know that um, being in this genre means I'm going to sit and worry about that constantly. I, I think there's a lot of readers who don't connect with books in the way that the author hoped. That's sort of yeah. well, no shit, you know, but um like the other part is like thinking about like if if a teenager was going to take that book as some sort of manual and say, well, I guess it's, you know, smooth sailing for me and saying fag, you know, same with Love Me Back by Merrick Tierce. You could say, oh, well, this book is about how if you get pregnant when you're a teenager, then you get to you know, do be a coke snorting promiscuous, you know, waitress in Dallas. So yeah, that's an aspirational you know, like, life. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, I don't know. The, like, the, I, I think you and I have talked about this before. Sort of the mandate of you know, it's, there's got to be a ray of hope at the end of kids' books. You know, that there has to be some sort of, you know, right. positive hope for the future kind of thing. And then I always go back to the Bunker Diary, which is dark and there's just zero hope and it leaves you just flailing in in sadness and really grateful that it's fiction I mean those are the things that I I think like that you know that is was sold as a young adult book here and of course it ended up being highly controversial in England which is you know won the Carnegie Prize and um it ended up being like, well, there's just no hope in this. As if like somehow children can't read books that, that are inevitably a little hopeless and understand that. And, and that's sort of surprising to me. Well, there's some, the one, another book that I wanted to talk about was history of wolves by Emily Fredland. And it starts with it. It's a, 
principal narrator is a teenager, but it also does kind of what the girls does, which is goes back and forth from her teenage main story and to the future where she's sort of a grown adult and has a grown adult relationships with other people. Um, but it, this, it wants to talk about this main story, this thing that happened to her where she was a babysitter for this weird family of Christian scientists. Are those the ones that yes. don't do yes. doctors? Is it? Okay. So she's, um, babysitting this family who live in this kind of amazing house out on uh, the lake that she lives in. And it's in like Northern Minnesota. So that's of course why I liked it. And, um, she starts to realize not in a way that the, that you and I realize or adults would realize that these, this family is not taking care of their son, that there's something wrong with the son. He's like four and they're not treating him. They're just hoping he'll get better. And so it's about her involvement with them. Um, and what happens when, you know, he gets very, very sick and, how she's sort of implicated into this family and why she is drawn to them and what's going on with her own family. And it's super juicy. um, I'm totally going to read that book. That seems like such a my bag. Right. And it might be that the teenagers reader who isn't really, you know, on the tip of what it's like to be a mom of a sick kid or um, what it's like to be in a marriage where the husband is like, no, you know, this is what we're doing because these are our beliefs, remember? And um, like not being able to kind of, we, you know, kind of get a toehold imaginatively because you have those experiences. Maybe a teenage reader would be like, yeah, I don't, what? Why didn't she just call the doctor? You know, like, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a crappy view of teenagers. Um, But maybe it's just not going to be as engaging because we assume teenagers are, you know, skin encapsulated egos that don't care about anything except, you know, their own experience. And it might be, again, not nuanced, but just too subtle. Like, (laughs) it's too subtle that this girl is having these feelings. Um, And that she doesn't really see the big picture, like that being the thrust of the story, maybe that's not, you know, sexy enough. Um, But the whole book is really about being a young girl who's sort of, um, she's exploratory and she has a kind of quiet sense of adventure, but she's also very shut down in a lot of ways. And it's, it's a beautiful story i you could probably i could find a million ways to shoehorn that into a curriculum about ethics and um family decision making and religion and you know but does it have uh, does it have on page sex it does um but that it's between her and her uh, adult boyfriend that she's in a relationship with and even that's kind of interesting because she's kind of a disconnected person. And so the sex they have is just sort of like, um, you know, uh, underwhelming transactional. Yeah. I mean, it, it's nice. I, but I can't, I don't, I, it's not vivid enough for me to bring it up obviously, but she, in the sex, she doesn't really have any sex as a teenager. So, um, but the, that book again, you know, it might be asking too much of people that don't have a, really big bank of metaphors to draw off. And so they're just like, huh, you know, and in order to dazzle younger readers and to finding the inherent pleasure that reading is, you have to give them things and, you know, sell them the sizzle of the steak and, you know, that really uh, help them Pavlovianly that's not a word, but on a very visceral level, connect reading with pleasure. And so we do that with, you know, high flying stories about heroes and heroines and, you know, epic romances and, you know, swooping tales that, you know, are as old as time. And like that shit hooks them in and then they'll go and maybe read Ulysses or something more quiet, like History of Wolves or, you know, the other one, like when we were talking about historical, the passion of um, Dolsa by Julie Berry, 
It was it marketed was, as a yeah. YA book. I don't know if that's just because Julie Berry is a YA author and, you know, that was on her contract or something. But, like, that book is set in, like, 14th century what is now France. And she, it uses this ye olde dialect. And it's about this strange small group or, you know, specific time during the Inquisition when people that were called the good people who would um, – preach about the word of God without being a priest um, and how they were burned as heretics and blah, blah, blah. And Dolsa is one of those people. And so the story is told by this girl who she and her sisters run an inn slash, you know, kind of brothel. And uh, they they meet up with Dolsa and f- learn about her story. And so, like, why is that interesting to teenagers? Because the main character is, you know, 15 or whatever. Well, she's 15, but she's also, um, like, a local matchmaker, and she has to support herself. She and her sisters start out as thieves that tell fortunes. Like, how is that connecting to today's modern snap chatting youth? You know, like, I don't know, but it's a wonderful book. So I guess somebody thought that that would be well, and you know, maybe that ends up being thing. sort of that gets curated. If that, if you understand what I'm saying, so maybe she wanted to write, you know, Julie wanted to write the the story that she wanted to write, and it was about this thing. And then they said, okay, well, what we really need to do is, you know, and I again, I'm saying like the, the proverbial marketing people, right? I don't know who these people are, but you know, say the marketing team, whoever it is, says, you know. <laughs> This will be really They're great. They're like 23 yeah. year but, old or, girls. Or this will be really great <laughs> for, you know, librarians. This is a really good way to get historical fiction into the hands. This is, you know, like for all the things that you could possibly say about it is that, you know, in the same way that Mad Wicked Folly or even Out of Darkness does, where you're talking about like a really specific time and a historical thing, and you can kind of sell that into teachers and librarians, in which case you're not really, I guess, necessarily writing for teenagers. In that case, you're really writing for librarians. You're writing, you're on that track, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're, you're, you know, shoehorning some history lessons in there. So it's all good. Um, That then it kind of brings me also to to ask about Megan Abbott, who wrote oh, Dare yeah. Me and The Fever, which are both about teenage girls. And um, Dare Me is about this group of teenage cheerleading girls that kind of... Oh, that has a lot of teeth. <laughs> yeah, that one is, so, has a lot of teeth. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're sort of evil. And I could see, like, teenagers or big Y super fans reading it and going, oh, gross they're so horrible who would ever do that why would kids want to read that you know and the fever is about these girls that all become kind of overtaken by this group hysteria this fainting illness they all become ill and um the question is to figure out why what's causing it and are they faking and is it real and whatever and um i don't i mean i thought those were great books and maybe it's because Megan Abbott is this literary New York lady who's like yeah I'm I'm writing real books you guys well I'm not yeah writing. right so it's the you same thing of like the virgin suicides which to me I'm like okay but you know Jeffrey Eugenides is gonna say like no that's I, we, I write adult books even though like everything about that book is to me sort of literary YA right you know whatever that means <laughs> whatever it means right 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 um yeah, I, I think part of this is maybe, you know, maybe the writers, maybe the agents, maybe the publishers, and all this gets decided on that, you know, and on that level. And maybe it's just what's selling at the time. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess what where we're netting out is that it's all a fucking well, mystery. And apparently and, flexible. You know. You know, I, I think that's like the right. big thing is to, I mean, in, in this is when you get into the business side, I guess, which is, you know, you, you write your books for whoever you're going to write them for, which I guess in the end should probably be yourself most of all, because that gets kicked over to someone else. And then they're just going to decide where to slot that in, you know, what's doing better, what's selling better, where the, where the money is really, you know? Right. Um, 
I mean, right. I, I don't know. I, I think like all of those books. The other thing about Dare Me, though, is I think about something like that. And uh, maybe that because that book lacks any kind of moral compass, really, <laughs> in any way. I mean, everyone right. in that book is a little bit a variation of despicable. Um, I also think that she spends a lot of time uh, with her characters so that what you would presumably think is like cliche mean girl characters. Instead, you get to live in their skin for a lot of time. And she really sort of pulls all of the things about them out. And maybe that, you know, changes things in, in something like that. Um, I liked Dare Me. I would be okay probably with my own kid reading that. Um, but I think she would go, whoa, this is, I mean, I think she would even say this isn't a YA book. You know, I think she would, she would acknowledge yeah. that in, in the same way, I think that, that for her, there is an understanding that most of the YA that she's fed in, in whatever ways, whether it comes from me or it comes from school, ha- has some sort of moral foundation or some sort of ray of hope or whatever that 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 is maybe that becomes fairly specific to this is that I wonder though I mean you thinking about the world we're living in and the kinds of data that is available to everybody instantly and the kind of imagery that's available to everybody instantly and this idea that protecting kids from the fact that there are people that have no moral compass that <laughs> just seems kind of crazy. Like, you know, like, oh, I wouldn't want you to invest your imaginative time reading a book about something where the ending was just like fucked up and hopeless and um, clear that this person had learned nothing. Like, I mean, look at who well, the yeah, no kidding. Is. But like he, he doesn't even know what's going, you Talk know, about a lack of I'm moral compass. He's just learning now. He, yeah, and he's just learning like what, what so what's the deal with North Korea and South Korea? Huh? You know, like you have this world that is being run by people who are just predominantly completely myopic when it comes to the feelings of anyone else. And then we're sitting here getting all nuts about whether the books that kids would enter into imaginatively, you know, doing that work wouldn't shore up some, you know, like super tidy conclusion. Well, oh, the world yeah, is full of untidy conclusions. You know that is true. But I, I, let me present this to you. <laughs> Because uh, I think it's true of my own teenage self, is that I think I saw things as fairly black or white, if that makes sense. That for me, it was, uh, it, you know, I was either a good or bad. Everything seemed like there was a lot less nuance in terms of shades of gray, even as I was developing my own feminism. You know, you were either a douchebag or you were not. Like this was sort of how it went. You couldn't be a mostly good person who did these a few douchebaggy things. You know, there was always, I think like as I age, I have much bigger of a of a landscape of well, we're really complicated, nuanced people. And sometimes our worst selves come out and sometimes our best selves come out. And I'm curious because, you know, I taught that class in Grinnell. I told you this, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and one of the, yeah. the, the women, girls, women, 19-year-olds in the class, she said to me, well, we were talking about other broken things. And she said, well, don't you think that Joe was just this predator? And I said, well, I did not write him that way. Um, and I said, but I think what the bigger question here is whether, because, you know, that story involves a 38 year old man and a 17 year old girl who get in a relationship together. And, uh, I said, you know, to her, I said, I think the bigger question is whether Natalie thinks he's a predator and whether she would think this in 10 years and what we know when we're 17 or what we think we know when we're 17 and then what we know when we're 27 and, and all these different things. And I think one of the things is that it's really easy to say, well, yeah, he's a predator. He's 38, she's 17. Like, obviously there's a predator there. And I think that to ask the question or to feel like, 
um, I, I, you know, I'm thinking about drowning instinct and drowning instinct is a really good example of something where you feel like, ugh, ugh. But at the same time, like you can see that she 100% feels in her heart that the teenage protagonist feels 100% that she is engaging in this relationship completely, that it's not an abuse of power, that it's all these different things that you think. And something like that, right. that level of, I guess, recognizing shades of gray, even the shades of gray that you could say, well, at 17, you would think this and at 27, you might think something differently. Even that sort of takes adult eyes, I think, which is what you're a little bit saying. But I wonder, you know, in, in what we're talking about, if part of the problem and part of the reason these books are being treated as adult books have to do with the fact that if it's a knee-jerk reaction to say someone's either good or bad and that they're implicated completely in whatever and that it's very black or white, that these books, these books that we're talking about that have a lot of shades of, you know, of, you know, nuance and subtlety and, and make you uncomfortable and then also kind of rooting for them and all these other things, maybe that is, the assumption is that that's too complicated. Yeah. I I mean, and it could be, I don't think that's totally like wrong. It's just just like, I, I mean, I just think about all the different layers and everything that we read and why, why things stick with us and we go back to them perhaps, or why we remember them. And it's not because we just go, well, that guy was bad, him, bad, her good. Like, that's just not interesting. That's not, I don't think the authors hope that you just have them labeled in one way that, that, that they have specific complexity is the, the joyful part about it. Cause you can see why this would not be, a, if you could just say bad, you know, like it's a stove you're touching that's been turned on <laughs> that that wouldn't be why you would sit there and read it for hours and hours. Yeah, so, I, yeah but at the same time, like, think about how much people criticize Mockingjay, which I actually thought was super uh, by the time, you know, that third Hunger Games, it's the third one, right? Uh, came out like there's a lot of I I guess there was a lot of criticism about that because it sort of just ended in this well so it goes kind of way which to me I actually loved but I could see like a lot of people were like really hoping for bad (laughs) you know like that there was a hope and I wonder if part of that hope is that you know either you know a reader's not quite ready for the nuance of like no, you're not going to get total happiness or no, you're not going to get like, it, it turns out that, you know, PETA was the perfect man for her all along. <laughs> like all of those things, you right. don't get that. Like, unfortunately in your life, you don't get that. But if they're still sort no. of, they're holding, clinging to this aspiration of, you know, that I, I see it in my own sons, particularly where they have that fairness thing where like they just double down on when things are not fair. And I'm like, gosh, why do you guys not know yet that there's like nothing that's going to be fair? Like you're going to see unfairness all the time in your life, but it just is sort of a learned thing. And then I would say, well, maybe that that's what books are for is to learn that like, there's not always fairness or that they, you know, that this is a a helpful evolution. And so the, the diversity of YA having, books like mine and yours and books that are cleaner and not cleaner in terms of content, but cleaner in terms of, you know, this is a simple story with the bad guy sort of getting his comeuppance at the end or whatever is going to happen. And, you know, right. books like the bunker diary where the bad guy definitely sort of want in that if they're, if you were to even look at it like that. But you know what I'm saying? Like all of that is becomes, you know, that's your evolution of readers is, is needing to have all of that. And so maybe putting the books that we're talking about, which are adult books, like maybe taking them out of the YA genre is doing a disservice to teenagers who should be reading these books. I think, and we should probably close up, but the way I kind of recall teenage life 
in myself. Yes, I know I had kind of a black and white view of what was fair and what was true and what was false. But I also remember the experience of it being a time it was there's so much boredom. It was like boredom and stress. Like, I got to do this and I don't really like doing it, but I got to do it. And then waiting for something to happen, imagining um, what might happen. There was just a lot of space where nothing took place except in my aspirations. And then something would happen that would be tiny, you know, like someone would make you laugh that you didn't expect and it would just crack you up. And then you would look at that person differently for the rest of the year. You know, um, there's such small shifts that mattered in those years that in the, in the reality of it, that's what I take away from it is a, a, the smallest thing could happen and it could matter in the biggest way. And I guess for me, that doesn't, you know, whether something's swashbuckling or sexy or, you know, thrill a minute or, you know, clear on its moral art, outrage isn't as important as just when I had things that happened that were surprising or beautiful or uh, hilarious in that void of time where you spend so many hours sitting at a desk and waiting and waiting and listening and listening and hoping for something to happen. And usually it doesn't. That's what I think being a teenager. Which is. I think and explains so, a lot about your writing maybe, too. I think that's right. But I think also too, that that informs so much of how you write too, um, which is a good thing. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Seth, it's okay. that, it's, it's that there time. we go. I, we didn't talk about sex at all. Yeah. Disappointments. I mean, Carrie, it's been that long. Mm-hmm. I maybe Whoa. it's because we've been talking so, about sex offline. Um, but we'll get yes. back to it because we've got an, another, you know, uh, romance book episode coming up. We've got. Uh, we're going to talk about a boy, the, the boy or the person next door that you're in love with. We're going to do one of those episodes. We have some good things coming up this year. Um, yeah, it won't be totally dry intellectual uh, yes, dissertations, uh, although I hope everyone consternation. appreciate all the books that we're talking about because uh, they were all good and worth reading. Yeah. Um, so we hope you lis- you liked it. You liked today's discussion. Um, thank you always for your feedback and book recommendations. You can always email us at feedback at the oral history podcast.com and sign up for our tiny letter for each episode at www. Uh, the oral history podcast.com. Yes. And don't forget to uh, visit our sponsor, the booklist reader at booklistreader.com. They've got a lot of other good stuff there. So give them a little love and until next time, remember sex and books are two things that are better when you talk about them.